Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Heart of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Hallie Tecco. We kicked off the year with a look back at digital health in 2023. I shared trends like the privatization of Medicare, the increase in premiums for employer-sponsored health insurance, the meteoric rise in GLP-1 medications, and how healthcare providers started warming up to Gen AI. I also shared some of the key metrics from last year including how VC funding in our sector was down 30% year-over-year, that M&A was also down 23% year-over-year, and how we saw zero digital health IPOs. It really wasn't a great year for a lot of founders and investors in our sector, but let's be optimistic. What does 2024 have in store for us? Today, I have guests Sophia Guerrera, and Morgan Cheatham from Bessemer Venture Partners on the show to talk about 2024 healthcare predictions. Sophia and Morgan, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. You guys shared 11 predictions for 2024. I'm going to leave the report in the show notes so folks can go read them because they're awesome. I wanted to go over a few of them. Okay, the first is that we've already seen the exodus of Taurus VCs investing in our sector and that our sector will actually benefit from a smaller group of seasoned domain expert investors who better understand healthcare. Um, I wanted to push back on this a bit because I feel like one of the biggest issues in healthcare is that we are so siloed and that we think we know everything. Uh, But every healthcare investor at one point made their first healthcare investment. And so if more people want to support the sector, isn't that a good thing? I mean, Hallie, I think that there are going to be parts of the healthcare sector that are going to see a ton of interest from other technology VCs. We, I think the space in AI and software and healthcare will continue to get a lot of interest. Although I think it, companies and founders and investors benefit from really understanding healthcare because it's really hard to sell anything in healthcare technology, software and services and understanding the regulation implications and tailwinds. So we are big believers that being specialists in this space enables us to be uh, the best partners we can to our founders. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And also mentioning that some healthcare investors, very much like our practice at Bessemer, kind of benefit from being a part of a larger organization. And I think that when we talk about tourist capital, we really talk about funds that have never even had a segment of their uh, uh, focus in the industry. And so I think that 
to your point, we should all continue to be students of what's worked in other sectors. Mm -hmm. um, we, we always like to joke that healthcare is 20, behi 20 years behind other industries, but it requires patient capital and it requires people who are kind of willing to, to Sophia's point, understand the nuances of some of the business models that are required to gain distribution and deliver value in the industry. And just to be super clear, I think this yeah. could be fleeting. It's certainly possible that as soon as the IPO window uh, opens and we have uh, you know some nice liquidity in the segment that uh, a lot of the tourist investors back. might find their way back. Yeah. Well, I mean, there were a lot of tech investors that when I was starting Rock Health and I was trying to get them interested in coming to our demo days that were like, we don't touch healthcare. We've already been burned there. And now they're back at it. So I think a lot of these investors kind of come and go with healthcare. What I would love to see more of is firms kind of teaming up and sharing deals across health and tech. Like Sophia, you mentioned within AI, I think that's a, a really great area because I do think for many digital health businesses, having an understanding of software can be really helpful in addition to the investors who get the nuances. Now, Bessemer is a fund that invests in both healthcare and tech. So, you know, you guys already kind of have that, but, you know, really having investors kind of cross-pollinate and work together to back these companies, I think is um, would be a good thing. I'm curious what you guys think is going to happen to corporate VC and if you tracked anything around what those folks are doing and if they've pulled back investment or if they're continuing uh, to back digital health companies. I haven't particularly followed any like numbers on this, but uh, from kind of qualitative experience, we've continued to see them be very active in, in this space and specifically across both services, value-based care, which we saw some M&A happen, but an also continued investment from big corporate VCs like CVS made, made a ton of investments in the space, as well as them understanding and thinking about how they can use AI as part of um, their strategy and yeah. supporting the executive teams within health systems and payers to help shape their AI strategy internally and actually also evaluate some of the companies that the incumbents are partnering with. Absolutely. And AI, we're seeing it a lot, Hallie, just to put the put the point on it, as, as these systems kind of grapple with what AI means for, for care delivery and how they embrace it holistically, uh, the risks and the benefits, we're seeing a lot of interest from strategic investors, particularly on the provider side and in our AI companies, and have frankly mm -hmm. welcomed their participation, given the challenges of, of deploying these technologies at scale uh, in such kind of critical areas of the of the sector. Yeah. Well, and and perhaps also tech companies like the Amazons and Googles that continue to be interested. And kind of on that note, your second prediction was that a lot of healthcare incumbents will strike more partnerships with, with startups. And we're not even through January yet. And we've seen that you saw the Amazon Omada deal, the Lily Direct, which I've been calling Lily Directory, which launched with a slew of mid-stage startup partnerships. I love this prediction. Let's talk about what you guys think is going to happen with the incumbents and the startups, because it feels like it's very much needed. I think there's two ways to cut it, and I'll maybe touch on on one perspective. Like, what do startups actually get from incumbents? I think there are a few things that they can benefit from. The most obvious of which is distribution. We talk about healthcare being a really hard field to break into and to sell to. We joke that the sales cycles are 18 to 24 months long, and as a startup, you may not have even raised enough capital to survive until you get your deal done. You know, we talk about brand and healthcare, which I think is often a really underestimated kind of attribute within the industry, like institutions like Hopkins or Harvard or Mayo Clinic, like these are organizations that have remarkable brands, um, as do groups like, you know, Epic and Milliman that we call it in the report. And so the ability to kind of benefit from that halo is also super valuable to companies that maybe haven't established the same level of trust that, that incumbents have. And then the last point that I think we've been talking a lot about internally is really, is really 
access to data. And this is particularly relevant for our AI companies. If you think about healthcare, it's an industry that has a ton of different data landlords, organizations that have been collecting data for decades and decades. Oftentimes, it's not even digitized. And so I think there's immense opportunities we've seen even recently with companies like Open Evidence partnering with Elsevier to kind of ride along these data landlords, partner with them, both from a product and distribution perspective. Sophia, I really yeah. hope I really hope to see more of this. I mean, Morgan had just had a few great examples of how this happened in the past year and our portfolio companies taking advantage of this. But as you think about kind of big tech technical shifts and improvements and then regulatory changes that create opportunity for innovation in healthcare, how does incumbent how are how are the incumbents going to adapt to change and and seek kind of the most innovative companies out there to partner with and kind of bring that to yeah. market. So I'm I'm positive that we're going to yeah. see a lot more of that this year. Well, it's interesting because M&A was down, we saw fewer acquisitions in the space, but you guys are predicting that we'll actually see more partnerships. So maybe some of the enthusiasm for digital health is kind of shifting from like hey, let's buy you to like, actually, we don't need to acquire you. Let's have a mutually beneficial partnership or JV of some sort to work together and benefit both our organizations. Maybe some are taking notes on like the Microsoft OpenAI collaboration, right? Um, I also just think looking at the healthcare yeah. balance sheets, they're not, not all of them are as robust as that of like Eli Lilly right now. And so I think the partnership is kind of a nice on-ramp for organizations to get acquainted and really identify if uh, strategic M&A yeah. makes sense, which I think is something we should also talk about for, for 2024. Oh, yes, we will. Yeah, just to quickly <laughs> add there, like partnerships are probably the first step to initiating a relationship, and perhaps that's yeah. going to give uh, rise to more M&A, especially as we also see a lot of companies in the early stage be a lot more efficient in terms mm. of cash flows. So companies are more willing to acquire assets that are not burning a lot of capital, so buying more time as well. Yeah. So I think it was probably 12 years ago that I wrote this article called like healthcare founders, like beware death by pilot, right? We saw over and over again, companies just invest all their resources and time and energy into a pilot with a generally a health system or a health plan only for it to go nowhere. I'm curious if you think that this has changed recently or if this will change in 2024 where these partnerships will be less experimental and more fruitful for the founders? I do worry that with the interest in AI and I think the, the proliferation of point solutions that potentially can do one thing and they can be a feature for one of these incumbents, we're going to see a lot more pilots in 24. But I do encourage founders to be laser focused as they think about a pilot, which is a, it, it's an opportunity and open door to really think about what are the right KPIs that you're you're focusing on that are leading indicators that you're providing value to that partner and really be laser focused and improving that and capturing improving ROI and in a quick time frame to make sure that you can expand that pilot. And then making sure there is identifying those KPIs early in the engagement so you also have buy-in from from the partner. Yeah, I completely, I love Sophia's framing, frankly, of, of like pilots as an opportunity to demonstrate ROI. And our firm's published a lot on like the different kinds of ROI that, that matter in healthcare, whether it's clinical in a value, value-oriented environment or purely financial um, for, for a lot of stakeholders. I know we're talking about pilots broadly, whether it be care delivery, which can actually take quite a long time to actually generate that data, which is why the pilot phase is so valuable. Um, but also in AI, I, I would almost even say, and Hallie, you asked us to bring some predictions from other colleagues in the industry. And, and Keith Figlioli at, at LRV had a really interesting one that generative AI will become more than just hopes and dreams and pilot programs in 2024. 
I think the reason it hasn't yet, other than the fact that the technology is so novel, is that we don't actually have the operational infrastructure mm. as an industry to support this technology at scale. One thing we talk about in the piece is really around the need for better monitoring infrastructure. And we're hearing this uh, from healthcare incumbents saying, you know what, we'd actually rather invest in model monitoring before we invest in a really yeah. flashy solution that's going to automate everything because we don't fully understand how this technology um, exactly. performs what it does. So I, I hope we yeah. make some of those investments in, in the new year and that'll help shorten the pilot yeah. cycle for a lot of these companies. Yeah, I, I wonder if you guys have any thoughts on how startups can really signal their differentiation in AI, because as you said, like a lot of these organizations don't have that internal expertise. They're eager to partner, but how can they possibly make that decision amongst multiple startups? How can your startup stand out as like, we're the one that you should partner with? What sort of signals could you give to an incumbent that might not have as deep of a tech expertise as you on your startup team have? Yeah, I'll start and then I'll pass to Sophia. We actually wrote a piece on this that we can link below called The Six Imperatives right. for AI-First Companies. And in it, we distinguish high level the difference between an AI-first company, which is a company that's engaging in AI research as a key business activity, versus what we describe as an AI-enabled company, which might be a company that's really software-based, that's mm. leveraging a large language model that someone else built to automate some certain process. And what we've seen really differentiate companies, we'll re reference our portfolio company, Abridge, is flexing that muscle that they're innovating at the core layers of the AI stack, where you ultimately have full control over all the different decisions you're making about how you're building your technology. If you're just building something on GPT-4 and it's kind of a thin layer, your product capabilities are going to hit a ceiling because you don't own everything else beneath that. But if yeah. you're truly innovating at that methods level, we've seen companies have greater optionality in, in terms of their TAM and then also you know, greater ability to differentiate on a feature set that's amenable and interesting to their customers. So Sophia, I'll turn to you too. I know you're working a lot with our AI companies as well. Yeah, something to add to is how these companies are going to market and the business models that they're using, I think, are evolving. And we're really excited to learn more about this. Holly, we may have talked about this during our state of health tech conversation, but uh, we're seeing kind of a new business model rise. We're calling it services as software. And it's the mm -hmm. idea that a company can de deliver or provide a service to um, the, the customer and perhaps is tapping into different types of budgets that are not particularly an IT budget and is requiring a bunch of the processes or pilots to go through to be deployed as a yeah. software business. Or an example of this is our portfolio company, SmarterDX, that provides a pre-built audit service for health systems and is able to identify net new revenue for the system. And they just get paid as a percent of the revenue that they find. So the the attribution that they get from the revenue that they're identifying is very clear. So and the ROI is, is basically immediate for the system. So the go to market has just been incredibly accelerated because of that. You guys also laid out how regulatory guardrails for healthcare and biomedical AI are going to start to formalize this year. Tell me more about what you're seeing seeing happen here, or what you anticipate seeing happen here this year. If we're being honest, I think there's going to be a lot more statements about regulation and, frankly, potential regulatory capture uh, in an election year in particular. The question of movement is, is key. I think we're really inspired by some of the collaborations between big tech, academia, and, and uh, other industry stakeholders on the healthcare side. Most recently, an organization called the Coalition for Health AI. 
And what these groups are trying to do is they're really trying to lay that infrastructure that regulators are going to expect around validation, right? It goes back to this point of, you told us your model would do X, Y, and Z. When we apply it to population A, is it performing at the same, you know, with the same performance as, as population B? That's a very simple example of, you know, a, a validation question that you might have. And so some interesting things we'll see in 2024 that Chai is spearheading is a national network of what we're describing as healthcare AI assurance labs, where organizations like Microsoft, but also academic institutions like Stanford will actually be ingesting other people's models, running them against rigorous criteria that, again, the industry is still kind of developing and giving back a readout to regulators, to people at health systems or payers that are procuring this technology to give them a formal assessment to your point of what separates the wheat from the chaff in some of these technologies. I don't think we'll have it all figured out, um, but I think that's that's probably going to be the biggest update. And then to Sophia's comments, I think the biggest gap in the market today for these companies is really business model and payment model. If you look at the average IT spend for a provider today, it's about $8 million a year. And that includes, you know, software, hardware, IT personnel. And that across 6,000 hospitals is just not a big enough TAM for all of the amazing technologies that are coming to market right now. Mm-hmm. So this, the services, the software model she describes maybe even reimbursement uh, for more of these products, like what companies like Viz have done. And clearly, I think all of that is is hopefully going to be talked about a lot more this year as we actually think about the blocking and tackling. So interesting. One other thing to add, we've been seeing a lot of health systems and payers set up governance and um, compliance committees that are kind of bodies that are reviewing a lot of the partnerships that the incumbents are partnering with or potential startups. And I think we're. This is only the start. I feel like this is going to be yeah. going to become the norm. And I hope that we can see these groups be cross-functional and collaborative with with other functions to speed up the decision making process for partnering with AI companies instead of just being one more committee that yeah. folks need to pass through. And do you think the the kind of self regulation that's starting to percolate is getting ahead so that? any sort of formal, you know, federal regulations kind of have some inputs and suggestions for where to start? Or is it just that the government's slow? <laughs> and, and we need to get I think the government's done. collaborating. I mean, to be honest, okay. like with CHAI, the Coalition for Health AI, like they have, you know, representatives from major, okay. you know, administrative bodies and at, at a federal level who are getting involved. I think the proof's going to be in the pudding, but folks are certainly leaned in, which is yeah. encouraging. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one to follow for our listeners. The Coalition for Health AI, CHI. We'll be right back after the break. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. 
Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, another prediction that I was surprised to see but is so interesting was a renaissance in consumer healthcare that emphasizes preventive care models and longevity and that the health and wellness industries will be colliding. So there has been a very cult-like group of longevity folks in Silicon Valley. Famously, I think of recently Brian Johnson who spends 2 million a year to reverse his aging. Tell me more about how you think this will trickle down to the mainstream this year. Yeah, and I'll give credit to our partner, Talia Goldberg, in our San Francisco office. She's part of our consumer team. And I've had the pleasure of working with her uh, on our investment in in Rupa Health, which is uh, a marketplace for diagnostics in the functional medicine space. Mm. And I've honestly been on this road personally as well, um, having read Outlive in Peter Atia's new book and really thinking about the role that diet sleep and exercise really pays in our lives and seeing like consumers be really interested in kind of this new wave of how do we live to a hundred, the concept of blue zones and how do you live healthier and a more fulfilling life than live longer on just pure normal years. And we think, I mean, we saw in 2023, huge interest in, in this concepts. And we think that it's just going to go more mainstream uh, in 2024. And I, I'm equally excited about the opportunity, and I juxtapose it with the reality as a medical student who's in a family medicine clinic right now where none of this is being talked about. I mean, to be super clear, it's hard enough to get folks to show up to their phys- annual physical, let alone have folks pay out of pocket thousands of dollars for their whole body MRI. But the prediction is that these worlds were, will collide. And I think that what seems like a very niche kind of category, maybe Reddit thread or you know to Twitter groups, et cetera, is, is going to emerge because people don't feel like the current system is working for them. Mm-hmm. And I think when that starts to happen, they feel like they have to take matters into their own hands. And people like Peter Atia and others who are really trying to make the science available are doing, I think, a really interesting job of educating people about the alternative ways they can take care of their bodies. Yeah. I mean, certainly our healthcare system could use more focus on preventive care and nutrition. Do you think that the health plans will start to focus on this as well? Or is it something that's always going to be up to consumers to cover financially? I think it's going to start with consumer demand, but as we are very focused on gathering data on the impact that this can have, proving kind of the long-term inc- outcomes could could benefit payers. I think the the one issue on the payer side is how long you're part of a health plan and who is going to reap mm-hmm. the benefits of uh, long-term health, right? So yeah. I think that's something that we need to still figure out as a system. Yeah. We had the same question about GLP-1s too, right? Like when we first debated whether those would be covered, it was who's holding the bag for the benefit. Mm. If people are switching plans every two years, to Sophia's point, you either have to take a kind of it's good for everyone approach or you're going to fight it tooth and nail on an individual basis. And uh, we're hopeful for the former. Yeah, tragedy of the commons for sure. 
Another space. example is yeah. gene therapies. I mean, we saw mm -hmm. several gene therapies get approved last year, and the eternal debate is how are we going to pay for this multi-million dollar therapies that can be curative. Um, and I think that currently we're seeing a lot of great development in therapeutics and diagnostics, but still not really solution to to how to pay for them. And Sachin, um, Jane had a prediction about this and how 2024 is going to be at the center of the debate here. But I look forward uh, to really thinking about outside yeah. of the box, how do we pay for these drugs as well? Yeah. So those are the those are my favorite predictions that you guys had that I wanted to discuss. But I was hoping you could each share one more prediction that you have for the year, either another one that was from Bessemer or one of your friends and colleagues in the field. Um, the one from outside of the field that I actually saw in several places, I think Nikhil had this mention as well as Blake Madden from Hospitology. They talk about how providers want to diversify their revenue base outside of services. And I think this is really interesting because I think Stat News also um, uh -oh. had an article post JP Morgan about how the health system track had a lot of discussion about how they were going to think about outside um, new business mo business models or products that they could sell. This could be anywhere from taking on more risk and becoming more of a payvider and taking more of like the payer side as well as expanding into dental care or even like consulting services. Um, and I think that we're already so seeing some of this yeah. and more, more to come. Yeah. Hey, I'd love for them to get into dental care. It makes no sense that our teeth and our eyes are, our ears are separate. It makes no sense. I think this is a simple one, but it's an optimistic one. And Sachin Jane also had mentioned he thinks startups will vanish. I think that the term vanish oh. we can unpack. It means that yeah. they will... Yes, some will go out of business as like natural selection takes its course, but also some will be acquired. They'll find homes in places where they can be bigger as part of something uh, larger. Um, but he also mentions he thinks they'll be re replaced with new ones. Um, and mm -hmm. I think that coming back from JPM, starting the year uh, as a team, I've never been more excited about the quality of the talent that I'm starting to see. I mean, how he thinks to a lot of your work uh, with Rock Health and and community building in the industry, we now have a deck people with, you know, decade, two decades of thinking about healthcare IT, as you mentioned it, or digital health or health tech. And um, I, I've just never been more inspired by by those folks committing to the industry, yeah. going after their second or third act, and then frankly, recruiting best in class talent from other industries to, to dip their toes in, into the healthcare water. So that's yeah. one that's simple, but I'm optimistic about. Well, it's interesting because the, the, we started off by talking about the tourist VCs going away. Also, the tourist founders are going away. It's a lot harder to get capital these days. It's a lot harder to build a company now. So I think we're also seeing that folks who just did it because they could, and it was e it was relatively easy for them to raise money in 2021, are realizing that there, there are better places for them to spend their time. And so we're kind of left with those who are the most committed to healthcare. But yeah, I agree. I think we're going to see uh, a really cool new cohort that comes out of this. And I'm talking also to a lot of founders who, I mean, they've seen some stuff, right? Like they're coming out of this. They're like, they're like, okay, like I'm really prepared. I was, I was overly optimistic and here's what I've learned. And I think for us to go from like taking these learnings and applying them to doing it better next time is the best possible outcome. Like we don't want these learnings to just like evaporate. And I'm, we're starting to hear people talk about it and share their stories and cautionary tales. And I think these are all things that are really healthy for the space. 
Yeah. One other thing I'll add there. Yeah. One of our founders, Shiv Rao at a bridge had mentioned in 2023, his prediction was it would be a year of GLP ones and GPTs, which I actually think in three words was a, was a perfect prediction. Yeah. But, but I think b- behind that or beneath that, I think what, what I want people to take away from Sachin's comments is that like, all bets are off, like all historical assumptions, conventions, like we're talking about like cures now, as Sophia mentioned, like we're talking about completely rewiring the way hospitals operate or how clinicians operate throughout their day. So like, I think yeah. we need an influx of new ideas into the industry. And we're finally seeing the tool sets develop <clears throat> and mature to where those new ideas can be trialed at scale. Yeah. And as well, I mean, this is very cliche, but the phrase that the be- the best startups are born in this times, so it comes down to what you say, Hallie, like, how do you take the learnings and really focus on very fast iteration where like you can prove with not much money what product market fit is before you scale. And I think we're going to see a lot of great startups be born yeah. from that. Yeah. Well, I'll share one prediction that I, I do want to end the show with a, a really fun game. So one thing we haven't talked about is value-based care and how we've seen, um, we have seen this shift. It's been slow. Um, there was some, you know, resistance at first, but really we're starting to see some major players and even new payviders like Devoted Health that have raised a ton of money to completely rework the system. And that's something I'm super bullish on is value-based care. And I think digital health is the perfect place for these ideas to be born, both value-based care enablement tools, and also just new providers that are able to use technology to be more efficient and deliver better care and completely align the payment outcomes with the health outcomes. What what does that mean for 24? Like more investment in value-based care, more success? Where's your... I, I think both. And I think we have now a really solid group of like the first cohort of value-based care companies that I think are going to have some really great exits or roll-ups, or maybe they'll acquire other companies and they'll just continue to gain momentum. And, you know, we've seen that in the Medicaid Advantage space. We've seen it in a lot of like city block health that are very community mission oriented. And so I hope that they'll continue to succeed and inspire other organizations. It's the new way to me. That's like the, the future is, is in that direction. I couldn't agree more. I think the progress in value-based care has been slow but steady. And I think um, the genie's out of the bottle. Like you saw large incumbents make big acquisitions last year, like Oak Street, Signify, One Medical, yeah. Iora, that uh, to your point, they're, they've, they've proven that their model worked at scale. And we're going to see a yeah. lot more um, in this space. And we, do, we did touch this in, in our article of it's an election year and we've made a lot of progress and all thanks to CMMI and other programs that have pushed some innovative payment models. And we hope given yeah. election year that we see other players like commercial payers also think about innovating and pushing the bull forward here to yes. not be stagnant. Yes. Amen. Okay. So we're going to end the show today with a game. I'm going to put you both on the spot and do rapid fire questions and listeners, I did not give them these questions ahead of time. So the pressure is really on and we will not hold you to accountable for the answers coming true or not. We won't listen to this in a year. I think it'll just be fun to kind of hear what you think on the top of your head. Okay. So first, Morgan, I'll ask you first. Do you think healthcare costs will rise, lower, or stay the same this year? Rise. Sophia? I think rise, but lower than inflation. Okay. Okay, 1.7% of Americans were prescribed a GLP-1 medication in 2023. What percent, I want a number here, will be prescribed one in 2024? I'll start. I'll go five. 
I was going to say five, between five nice. and 10%. I think that's a good number. Yeah, that feels reasonable. Where Depends do they- what happens to prior auth and all of that, but ah. I, we, can't, we can't put that caveat. <laughs> Where do you think digital health funding will land this year? Flat, up, or down? I think slightly up. Right. I'm optimistic. I mean, we, I've, we've, we've hit bottom. I think with the, all of the excitement around AI and applications in, in that layer, we're going to see a lot more funding, especially uh, for healthcare. I'm going to go with flat insofar as I don't know if there'll be a lot of mega rounds if the IPO window opens and companies mm. can get out. Yeah. If it doesn't open, actually, then we might be slightly up because those companies might take on some large tranches of capital. Yeah. Well, and what happened to the funds, too? There, the, A lot of funds are kind of at the end of their lifeline, and um, I don't know how many are raising new capital. So I'm kind of in the in the flat bucket, but I think it's plenty of money to support a really great group of companies. Okay, M&A, flat, up, or down? I think it's going to be up for the same reasons. We're the same reasons we discussed in some of the partnerships, right? That you started to see a lot more efficiency in some of these businesses and folks be more acquisitive as they kind of start to consolidate some of point solutions in the ecosystem. For CEOs out there, I think the question of to roll or be rolled should be top of mind. Mm, to roll or be rolled. Well, I think with that, the M part of the m is probably going to go up and we'll see a lot of um, companies, again, in, in roll-ups and mergers of equals that I think will become more common. Uh, my guess is that m will perhaps increase in in quantity, number of deals, but I, I'm I don't know if we're going to have any enormous billion-dollar acquisitions this year. I think they might be smaller on average. Okay, how many digital health companies will go public? Zero. Zero. I I bet you it's going to be first half of 25, first quarter. I think we're we're waiting to see more of the tech, tech IPOs happen and perform well before we start to see some digital health ones. I'll say two. Okay. I'll so, say two, two squeeze in by the end of the year. <laughs> so PitchBook predicts three digital health companies will go public. That would be nice. I think that'd be nice. Which three do they say out of curiosity? I, do you have I don't think, no, the they, didn't, they didn't say. They okay. didn't want to call them out. But yeah, I think, I, I, I would guess two as well, hopefully. Okay, if someone were to buy a basket of digital health stocks today, let's say the, the portfolio you guys put together for your trends in um, the public markets. Okay, when we talk again a year from now, Will they have made or lost money? I think they would have made money because, I mean, we we looked at a bunch of these trends, but I think we've hit bottom and fundamentals in some of those companies have really improved. They've mm-hmm. already up, I think, 5 to 10% since 23. So I'm optimistic that those are going to continue to improve. I'm with made for similar reasons of, of having hit hit bottom and hopefully interest rates come down and like markets continue to build back. But I would also argue that I'm not sure if you would just be better off buying QQQ. Mm, yeah. The one thing I'll add is I need to look it up. But OK, so in the Rock Health Report, they looked at um, the public the the public markets for digital health and they they predict that it will recalibrate. Um, but it was really interesting to note that as of December 31st, 17 percent of the digital health public companies, so about one, almost one in five we're non-compliant with listing standards. And we already lost five on the market this year or last year. 
So five were delisted last year. Um, so it looks like we'll probably have some more delisted. So I guess it depends on the weight of your stocks, because I do think that there are some that are hanging on by a thread. Yeah, and depends also the ones that are included, not yeah. just the way. Yeah. And this is this is not stock purchasing advice, listeners. Okay, and lastly, uh, and this is totally out of left field, but you guys have brought up the election a few times. Um, so who's going to win the U.S. election? Tell me. I can't even vote. I'm not American. So I, would, I would pass that to Morgan to answer. But your, but your job is going to, to depend on this, no? Uh, you know, I honestly can't say. I don't want to jinx anything, so okay. I'm going I'm to stand down. Okay. So then, how about how about I reframe that? What the outcome of the election? Uh, how will that? Whether not who it is, but whether it's it stays in the Democratic arena or hands over to Republicans. How do you think that will change healthcare in the next two three years? You know, I'm hopeful that it remains in kind of the Democratic hands and we continue to see a lot of focus on improving some of the Medicaid expansion, like taking more on like the ACA side and honestly bringing drug pricing to the center and kind of pushing forward on some of the changes that we're seeing there. I think there's going to be a lot of pushback and reframing in in the IRA, but we've seen some improvements in the last four years. And the only way that we continue to push that forward is if you see some continuity. Yeah, yeah, I'd echo that. And I think uh, leaning similarly and just hopeful that there's kind of a continued focus on increasing access uh, because insofar as all these great therapies and diagnostics are exciting and AI is amazing and can do all these wonderful things, it doesn't matter if it's only getting into the hands of a select few. Yep, I agree with that. All right. Well, that, thanks for the non-answer, but I think that was a great discussion. <laughs> Sophia, Morgan, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for, thanks having, for having us. us. And listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to The Heart of Healthcare. Thanks for listening to The Heart of Healthcare. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please leave a rating and review and don't forget to subscribe. The Heart of Healthcare is produced by Hallie Tecco. The show is engineered, edited, and mixed by Kyle Moore. Visit our website, heartofhealthcarepodcast.com, for show notes and episode details. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home yes, cool. or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.